Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work. You really really want it all to work out while you're away. monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome into an all-new episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, hooray for bipartisanship, Nick. Nick and I on the budget agreement bill passed by the House and Senate, signed by President Biden this past weekend. If you missed it, everything in it, what you need to know. Plus, NBC News has a familiar face, leaving one of its marquee shows. More on that from Nick and I in just a bit. And speaking of NBC News, later on in the program, Former NBC News correspondent Luke Russert is going to be joining us to talk about his new book. It's out now wherever books are sold. It's called Look For Me There, Grieving My Father and Finding Myself. If you don't know who his dad is, the late, great Tim Russert, longstanding figure at NBC and the host of the Sunday talk show Meet the Press, one of my personal heroes in the industry, Nick. Um, we're excited to talk to Luke about the book, about his father. And the book is a really good read. Got a chance to finish it over the weekend. And I mean... There's travel stories of plenty in there, but the personal journey and the growth that he goes from his father's death, leaving the industry and then kind of, or actually jumping into the industry that his father was a part of, and then leaving it all of a sudden to travel the world. It's, it's an incredible book. Go get it out now, wherever books are sold. Speaking of incredible, shout out the new show on Leon Media Network, Educate Us, my co-host Nick Saveri, Dr. Stacey Schultz, Dr. Patrice Fenton. Three former educators. The series is now live. The Educate Us podcast available wherever you get your podcast. You can go to leonmedianetwork.com backslash educate dash us to find out more. Or just go to leonmedianetwork.com. You should see it there in the drop down. Uh, Nick, quickly, your new show is out now. You are excited. This is what we've been kind of teasing at for the last couple of weeks. And when I emphasize the word quickly, Nicholas, 
quickly. Explain to the people how happy you are quickly, how happy you are about. No, seriously, like take me through a little bit of, uh, you know, the show is out now. It's been getting some good reviews out there. A few haters in the education space. I know you want to dive on a couple of them. There's a few that listen to this program that have written in, but uh, thoughts on the show being out now and what and what's to come in the next uh, couple of episodes for the show. Yeah, you know. I'm especially proud of the fact that it's it's really a spinoff from this program. You know, we very early on, you know, we had talked to you know people in just all walks of life and industries, right? And then when we really kind of pivoted, not necessarily pivoted, but really got deep into the news and commentary space, we realized that there were certain conversations that are probably not going to make a whole lot of sense on on this platform. Um, and one of which was the area of education, which comes up often, but we we've always talked, you know, you and I offline about, well, can that potentially be built into something bigger? You know, and I early on I had an idea of like maybe a mini series, things like that. But then I was able to recruit, you know, some just incredible people that I work with that are also friends as well and really knowledgeable in the education field that were interested in in finally having a platform where they get a chance to to really sh- lend their expertise and talk further. Uh, and then along the way, um, you know, be able to connect with others that can also share their stories too. And and that's where that's where the show really came out of. And now, you know, a couple episodes already basically put together. Um, you know, we've already, you know, basically put in the can, quote unquote, a couple of awesome interviews. And we range from everything from talking about assessments, what does that really mean, to what does it mean to have accountability in the classroom? funny i'm starting with two a words right but but those are terms that we often hear in education that are so broad you know the conversation of assessment what are my kids learning how are they assessed by it and such there's so many different versions of that conversation you can have and we're glad to have someone on that can talk really more fully about it and then on the other side about accountability you know we hear that all the time for teachers for students for school leaders for families and what have you but what does that actually mean when that exists in the classroom we have someone who's able to who recently released a book who can talk more about that, you know, as far as people who've already, you know, expressed their displeasure at the show, you know, I, I would say early on, I mean, we've had one episode that's basically about to come out uh, and then others are ready to go. I would just say sit, sit back, give us a chance. Honestly, um, you know, I think the early critiques are funny, but uh, like our own show here, can we please talk? You know, people are going to do one of two things. They're either going to like your show or three things. They're either going to like your show and they'll support you. Uh, they'll be ambivalent. You know, they just don't really care uh, or they're going to hate. And it's the third group. I always say that anyone could do this truly. I mean, in terms of starting it, the difference is maintenance. The difference is how much can you care about this? Um, and to anyone who is critical or has a thing to say about it in the not so nice as a way, I would say get in the game. You know, it's again, RSS feed, microphone, good point. You know, set up your own thing and um, hopefully you too can be as, as successful or get a chance to do this with the people you care about, which I get to do both here, but also now in another space. So I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm also just grateful to, to you and the network to, you know, believe in that concept that it can be its own thing. Yeah. He ignored my quickly part there, uh, folks, but that's all right, though, because I don't allow, you know what, for this one, uh, Nick, you get a pass because it is true. Like this is you and I started this show a few years ago. Uh, people don't know if you're just listening to us for the first time ever. We started a show 12 years ago on YouTube that didn't do that well. And uh, and now that we have this and we've been able and fortunate enough to 
branch out into other areas and we've got other shows coming out on the network. Check out everything over at leonmedianetwork.com. More shows coming out in politics and wellness, uh, leadership and coaching, people that you've seen on your television, people that you've seen in the influencer space. So I'm super proud of the work that you guys are doing. First few episodes as, as the executive producer, uh, I put that hat on. First few episodes sound good. And I, I agree. There's a lot happening in education that I'll be honest, I, I don't know a lot about. And that's the whole point of this show, right? We talk to people who know what they're talking about. Um, and that's why I was I was love that you guys started your own thing and really diving into an industry that not only that you work in present day, you know a lot about the three of you. There's just so much in terms of, forget the, the C word, the content word. There is so much happening out there and people are, are just sometimes are really knowledgeable or at least they pretend to be knowledgeable about what's happening in education space. And then, you know, just like we did with this show, where'd you hear that from? Where'd you learn that from? And they can never source it, right? And that's why I started this show, right? Because it shouldn't just be me as your only source. It should be a, a wide consumption of a bunch of different things. So let's move to our first segment real quick, Nick. Um, over the weekend, if you didn't see this, President Biden signing uh, the bill that, that came into uh, his desk. Uh, the final agreement was passed by the House on Wednesday and the Senate on Thursday. This agreement now, just two days to spare, Janet Yellen had said Janu uh, June 5th would be the day when the U.S. would run out of money and default on its bills. And now he signed the legislation on Saturday that lifts the nation's debt ceiling and inverting an unprecedented, excuse me, averting an unprecedented default on the federal government's debt. I want to play a little bit of um, Senator Chuck Schumer and Minority Senate Leader Mitch McConnell and their comments about the bill being signed. Take a listen to this. Now, Democrats are feeling very good tonight. We've saved the country from the scourge of default, even though there were some on the other side who wanted default, wanted to lead us to default. We may be a little tired, but we did it. So we're very, very happy. Default was the giant sword hanging over America's head. But because of the good work of President Biden, as well as Democrats in the House and Democrats in the Senate, we are not defaulting. The American people elected a divided government. After two years of total Democratic control, two years of radical spending and runaway inflation, they decided to send a Republican majority to the People's House. They decided to require that President Biden and Washington Democrats start working with Republicans on the biggest issues facing our country. Now, divided government means negotiated deals. It means nobody gets everything they want. You know, last time we did an app, Nick, the bill had not passed yet. Neither chamber had voted on it. We had played clips from the presser of President Biden talking about the compromise and the agreement. And at the time, reporters were scrambling to kind of report on everything that's in the bill. Now the bill has been digested. Now the House and Senate have had a chance to look at it, vote on it. Everybody's done some political grandstanding. Some people didn't even make the vote to be able to vote <laughs> on time. Nick's going to get on that in a second. So a bunch of different things that happened over the last week since you and I recorded the 99-page bill restricts spending for the next two years, changes some policies, including in, uh, imposing some new work requirements for older Americans receiving food aid, greenlighting an Appalachian natural gas pipeline that a bunch of Democrats opposed, some environmental rules were modified, 
the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, again, not a partisan office, nonpartisan, estimates it could actually expand total eligibility, this bill, uh, for federal food assistance with the elimination of work requirements for veterans, homeless people, and young people leaving foster care. The legislation also bolsters funds for defense and veterans, and it cuts back, which was a huge Republican point from Speaker McCarthy, it cuts back the money that was going to be spent on the Internal Revenue Service and President Biden's call to roll back some Trump era tax breaks on corporations and wealthy. There was a bunch of different people that were opposed to the bill as well, Nick, but uh, overall passed by a large majority in the House, uh, the Senate 63 to 36 passed the bill. So you had 46 Democrats and independents and 17 Republicans in favor um, in the House, it was 314 to 117. So the reason why we'll get into this in a second, some of the folks that were grandstanding saying they didn't want to vote for it, including one that's been on this program, Representative Jamal Bowman uh, out of my old district in New York. He said he called this bill a Republican hostage bill. I want to read a little bit of what he said here. Uh, Americans deserve to know that throughout these negotiations, Republicans only agenda was to slash programs for working families, vulnerable Americans. So they continue to Handles dollars to rich donors. I appreciate that President Biden fought off their most extreme demands and won some important concessions. But this process was designed to rely primarily on Republican votes. Like many of my colleagues, I cannot in good conscience endorse a bill that unnecessarily pairs a debt limit increase with attacks on the poor and marginalized and that threatens our shared future with more giveaways to the fossil fuel industry. Um, Nick, we've had a chance now to kind of dissect the bill a little bit in the previous episode. Now, at the time, you were like, well, the theater of all of this during the week is going to be hysterical to see, right? Like who votes yay, who votes nay? We didn't really get a lot of that because the House passed it so fast. And then the Senate didn't wait until, you know, the weekend, until Saturday to, to you know, call the chamber into session and start voting. They did it Thursday. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, President Biden signing this bill uh, comes Saturday uh, as the news cycle is really, you know, no one's paying attention to the news cycle on the weekends. And I say this as somebody who appears on TV on the weekends. So I know that. Uh, what do you make, though, Nick, of now seeing the bill uh, out there? It's approved. You heard uh, Speaker McConnell there and, and, and uh, excuse me, Minority Speaker McConnell and, and Chuck Schumer there uh, both talking about their different sides uh, being the reason for this bill coming together. I like what Mitch McConnell said about, um, that, you know, this is what the American people voted on, right? They voted on split government. You two got to work together. That's why you saw so many races were so close in 22 across the board. What do you make of everything we just played, talked about, and now that the bill is actually passed, what it will actually do? Yeah. First, you know, just a, resource note to everyone clerk.house.gov really good website for counting votes and figuring out who voted on what so you know when we heard senator schumer at the start talking about republicans want to hold the country hostage and you know a lot of these you know talking points from from the party at the end of the day you know republicans voted 149 yeses to 71 no's so you know and on the democratic side 165 yeses to 46 no's so you know, both parties recognize the need for this to go through. You know, I mean, I think you brought you brought up, you know, that this went through smoothly. And I agree with you. You know, and when we think about why, right, because I, I was very, as you just mentioned, I was very sure that this was going to get interesting, that you were going to have enough people 
particularly on the Republican side of the House, that we're going to make enough of a stink. Uh, and I'm gladly wrong because to to default would talk. We're talking about anyone who's you know receiving federal dollars would have been in jeopardy. You know, Social Security checks, all forms of federal benefits, and those people don't win here. Um, I'm going to now pivot to some of the political theater for a second. You know, one of the first things I saw when I I start bookmarking tweets a lot. Um, and I saw a comment from Representative Cory Bush about reparations, and it was dated around the time of this vote. And and I understand the point. It is an important conversation that we can have as a country. Now is not the time to have it. And I and, and I regret saying that a little bit because it's it's a conversation that that we should have had for many many years. But you know, right now we have this pivotal vote on the on the table and. You know, at it's at this particular moment, Representative Bush says, "Well, this is more important." Well, it's not really. No, it's actually this is the bill here. Your job right now is to decide or to vote on this particular bill. And like Mike, I bang my desk often when it comes to elected officials because they are truly representatives of us. And when they choose not to do their jobs or do them badly, as voters, we obviously have a say in that. You know, for the House, every two years we can have our say in the Senate every six. And then, of course, shout out to the state of Oregon that if you do set, decide to mess around, you will find out. And if you miss up to 10 days of legislative work, you just simply can't run for future elections. I champion that. So you have Cory Bush, who in the end, I believe um, I can't I, I can't find her at the moment, like where she landed on this. But um, but I know on the Republican side, a very noticeable no. And the reason why was very interesting. So just as Mike was talking about Representative Jamal Bowman, I'll switch over and talk about Representative Lauren Boebert of Colorado. Um, and first and foremost, um, I don't know how many people have been hearing about this, the divorce, situ- divorce situation. There was a 911 call. You know, as much as we made fun of the congresswoman on this show, at the end of the day, those are pretty just tough things to deal with. And, um, and I feel sorry for her family. You know, I'm not obviously a big fan of hers. I have almost nothing in common with her politically. But at the end of the day, those are those are tragic things for a family to go through. And for anyone who's heard the 911 call, um, that was just that was that was unsettling, to say the least. So a quote from her was, um, quote, once again, the once again, Washington's power machine shoved a multi-trillion dollar bill down our throats, refused to allow debate or amendments, disregard everything we fought for in January to actually allow representatives to do their job. Let's just deconstruct that for a minute. So, you know, Washington's power machine. Well, who is she talking about? <laughs> We're talking about the House of Representatives, who basically did its job and voted. Um, what is actually being shoved? A, a, a vote was passed. Um, refused to allow for debate or amendments. Well, in order for a debate to happen, you have to get the votes to do it. And they didn't get it. So not getting what you want is a lot different than saying, well, you know, we were forced into this. You know, the machine took this away from us. And if that rhetoric sounds familiar, go check out what happened in 2016 with Bernie Sanders when his how his supporters felt everything worked out when he didn't win the primary. I bring that parallel up because oftentimes when people don't get what they want in politics in the U.S., at least it's always, well, the machine is out to get me, which is foolish. Instead, according to Representative Boebert, they served us. They served us up a quote unquote crap sandwich. Um, well, Representative Bobert, you could have always done something about that if you had been more present, if you had decided to be more engaged, but she couldn't even bother to show up to vote. So her stance on this was, well, 
I didn't get, you know, it wasn't worth going to. It was a crap sandwich. That's what she said. Um, but in truth, actually, what had happened is at the night of the vote, it was caught on video that she was running up the steps of the, to the Capitol building to get in. Um, she ran with the same type of fervor that people did on January 6th, but that's neither here nor there. Um, and she and someone yelled back. A journalist said the vote's been done. And she went and turned back at the person and said the votes the votes done now that's important because her acknowledging that comment from someone means that that is truly what she was trying to do and i would ask representative bobert a very simple question where the hell were you if you want to vote no that's fine but to not do your job again you are a paid employee of the of the american people all you gotta do is just vote that's silly to miss the vote. Like to me, I, and I always come back to this. If you're not going to do your job and especially in a job like that, then you're a dereliction of duty. We should be able to take some money back, right? Like if, you know, when Kyrie decided to miss that time with the nets, guess what happens? Some of the money gets recouped back for the team. I think the same thing for Lauren, for representative Bobert. Um, but yeah, I mean, representative Bowman, representative Bush. I mean, you had people all over the aisles that were using this moment to grandstand. And that was what I was pointing out to earlier in the week when I, I predicted that maybe we don't get this on the first vote. And I'm glad I was wrong for people who benefit from, from this going through. But the theater needs to stop. And, the, and what I hope listeners take away from this is that we're talking about both parties. You know, I always get slammed or being like the sort of like zany, you know, um, off kilter liberal here. And that's fine. But understand that both Mike and I throughout the week, we're identifying you know, regardless of political party, people who are really just not doing their jobs. Like, do your job, folks. It's not that hard. And you're on you're on recess right now, a lot longer recess than the average American gets, but that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah. that's silly. Just do your job. That's all. No, you're right. I mean, again, said it a bunch, hypocrisy, both sides of this. And I was texting with somebody actually funny enough that um, you know, we were talking about the vote itself and how now what you're gonna see is because President Biden and Speaker McCarthy kind of came together, tallied who they knew would vote yay for this, the ones that are in the nay are the loudest ones, right? And so it was funny to me as, you know, the Freedom Caucus and, uh, you know, the right MAGA-leaning folks in the Republican Party were touting this as terrible, right, about Speaker McCarthy. There were some that were like, maybe we need even need to revisit this clause about, you know, invoking it and removing him from being speaker. On the flip side, the progressive caucus, you saw them saying, we're not voting no because of this. We're voting no because of that. And it's like, it doesn't matter why you're voting no. You're voting no. You are voting no. You can throw the rest of that excuse out the window. I don't care why you're voting no. And it's kind of why I voted, I bought up Representative Jamal Bowman because what I think the difference, the only difference is well, actually, it's not really a difference. Both of them know their no's mean nothing. They know that they have the votes. And in D.C., that's all that matters. As long as you have enough of the votes, 218 and 60, you don't really, you could do whatever you want in terms of the political grandstanding. So I agree with you. Speaking of somebody that's not going to be doing his job that much longer before we go to the break and talk to the former son of the host of Meet the Press, Chuck Todd recently announced that he is going to be stepping down from NBC's Sunday show, Meet the Press, uh, if you don't know what Meet the Press is, and if you don't know what the Sunday shows are across the networks, as they're affectionately titled, one of the more popular shows on NBC, it's been around for so long, Meet the Press. It is currently the 17th most popular show on NBC, 
with an average audience of close to 2 million people that watch the Sunday show. And Todd recently said, as the host of the past nine years, that he was going to be stepping down. Take a quick listen to what he said on this past Sunday's Meet the Press show. I have a personal announcement. Well, today is not my final show. This is going to be my final summer here at Meet the Press. It's been an amazing, nearly decade-long run. I'm pretty, really proud of what this team and I have built over the last decade, and frankly, the last 15-plus years that I've been here at NBC, which also includes my time as political director. I've lo- loved so much of this job, helping to explain America to Washington and explain Washington to America. When I took over Meet the Press, it was a Sunday show that had a lot of people questioning whether it could still have a place in the modern media space. Well, I think we've answered that question and then some. But the key to survival of any of these incredible media entities, including here at Meet the Press, is for leaders not to overstay their welcome. I'd rather leave a little bit too soon than stay a tad bit too long. It's funny because why am I bringing up Meet the Press? And, and it just so happens that we're talking to somebody whose father uh, was really the icon behind the show, let's be honest, for a long time up until his passing in 2008. And now Todd took over a little bit of the torch and um, obviously now he'll be leaving this coming year. But political debate shows and the format that you're seeing now followed across the industry in sports. First take, Shannon and Skip Undisputed, that show's coming to an end. This not so much hot take machine, but it's just... Let's get four people in a room and let's all talk about issues that are playing out. See if we can get some contentious moments or not. And then, you know, when we come back from the break, we'll talk to, you know, a guest, right? You see it in the sports space. A a sports figure will come on in the political space. Like Todd mentioned, explaining D.C. politics to somebody. And here comes, you know, a a U.S. sitting senator or or even the president himself, you know, who has not been on this necessary instance with Chuck Todd, but others have been on the Meet the Press franchise, and they've expanded uh, Meet the Press to now not only podcasts, but other ways people are consuming the show format. And it really, for me, as a, a watcher of these Sunday shows, there was always something about the format with Tim Russert and the way the show really kind of held feet to the fire. I feel like what is lost now, and a lot of the criticism on Chuck Todd has been, the holding the feet to the fire. I've mentioned from the TV angle of how hard that is to do when someone's talking in your ear and you're supposed to listen to the person that's talking in front of you. That's incredibly challenging. I'm not diminishing any of that. It is super hard to do. However, Todd hasn't been known as the best interviewer in terms of his follow-up questions and ability. People could say that about us too, Nick. You know, I mean, but I don't want to do confrontational journalism, right? So the reason why we have this show is to ask people questions hopefully get that. That is a really good question and get an open and honest response. But I saw this, I, I had been talking to my father, funny enough, about uh, uh, Tim Russert's son, Luke, coming on the program to, to promote this new book. And then all of a sudden he texts me, hey, did you see Chuck Todd stepping down for me? Speaking of Meet the Press, what do you make of Chuck Todd uh, stepping down? We've mentioned him a bunch here on this show as we've analyzed different media segments across not only his show, Jake Tapper's uh, State of the Union, uh, ABC This Week with George Stephanopoulos. All of these Sunday shows are trying to one-up each other. They're creating content. They're trying to maybe add to the discourse, maybe add to the click economy, as you affectionately call it, in terms of trying to get a clip out there, a soundbite out there. The one thing I think that they don't do great of, and we, you're, you're going to hear a little bit when we ask Luke this question, 
is that again talking to serious people like why is jim jordan on at sunday at 9 a.m when we know you're not going to be able to get through your questions because the talking points are handed to him he's going to hit on these points like it's 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 confrontational journalism at best but what did you make of chuck todd leaving and now they've already announced who his replacement is going to be Kristen welker who's a chief white house correspondent and co-anchor of the show. But what, what are some of your takeaways before we go to the break and talk to the son of the former host of Meet the Press? What do you think about the current host stepping down? Yeah, I, I never, prior to joining Meet the Press, I thought Chuck Todd's value at NBC was was a pretty good one. Um, he felt like a pretty good, he felt like an informed political insider, um, just brought a lot of good information to these conversations. He seemed to be a kind of person who could sort of read the tea leaves or had good sources to talk about. But sitting in what effect what I would affectionately refer to as Tim Russert's seat, it's a whole different conversation. Um, I I didn't I never thought he was the best fit for it because I think in many ways it did seem evident over the years that I think some of the guests overwhelmed him. Um and it felt as though people were using that show as a platform for their own respective agendas. You know, one of the things that Meet the Press always prided itself on. Um, for all the years that Tim Russert was there, was the fact that it felt like regardless of political party, you know, you were a guest on the show. Uh, you got a chance to talk about, you know, the issues of the day, but you were going to get grilled. I, there were numerous times where, um, and I think this is the thing that endeared me to Russert was that, you know, somebody would say something and then he would cl- he would pull out a clip or you'd see a, like a graphic of it and say, well, but we have a clip of you saying this. And then you'd see like a newspaper heading, right? Um, and they were just at the ready. But he did it in a way of just kind of like calling someone in, not necessarily calling someone out. Um, and I think Russert made a made a reputation or a built-in environment there that was, this was no BS. Mike, it's funny because you, know, you and I both growing up, you've talked about the fact uh, how important that show is for you. And obviously, we're going to talk about that with Luke in a moment. But you know, for me, Sunday morning programming, that was it. Like it was just, you know, having that cup of coffee or a cup of tea or whatever and it was just like it was a fixture and i think my dad probably got me into it too like it was just you know nbc channel four you know for us where we lived growing up and it, we were just with that it was funny like when i realized that other networks had their own uh political talk show on sundays i just never watched it and it was always funny because after meet the press eventually you would have on at 11 a.m i only remember that because it was like shortly before like nfl you know pregame shows would start was like the mclaughlin group which was satirical at best just four people yelling at each other um and it was just cartoonish and it was it's been spooked a thousand times over but prior to that um mr russer who i that's the only way i can think of him as just did an incredible job of creating a home for people. But really, for people like you and me, it's like, well, what's going on in Washington? Like, I know what happens in my town, right? But, but like in D.C., what is actually going on? And you felt like you were sort of in like Tim Russert's like office for a moment, moment and hearing people really call to the carpet to say like, hey, what's going on? You know, it's funny. There's a quote in uh, Luke's book about after his father passes away. And I forget, it's somebody that, owns a restaurant i believe in the town where they live and you know he comes up and gives luke a hug and he goes you know and this guy was an immigrant from somewhere else and he goes your father taught me what american politics is like and you heard a little bit of chuck todd kind of echo that there about what the goal and intention of meet the press was to kind of bring dc 
politics to the country and kind of explain it a little bit more. So uh, we wish Chuck the best uh, in his future endeavors. Excited to see what the shape of that show kind of looks like. When we come back after the break, we talk to the son of the former host of that show. This fantastic book, though, Luke Russert. Go check out this book wherever books are sold. Look for me there. Grieving My Father, Finding Myself. It's available now wherever books are sold. It's made the New York Times bestseller list. I'm excited to talk to Luke about this journey that he took as his father passed away. He ventured into news in a kind of backwards way, not really wanting to do it, ended up doing it for eight years and then kind of took this sabbatical and journey to kind of find himself. And the the lessons he learned traveling abroad, it's incredible and it's all documented in this book. Luke's going to break it down when we come back after the break. Quick break from our pod to tell you about a new pod at Fresh Roasted Coffee, Envy Pods. So if you go to freshroastedcoffee.com, my partner's shaking his head. That's a good transition. What are you? Are you kidding me? It was good. No, I shook my head. I was like, that's brilliant. Thank you. Because <laughs> I saw the I saw this picture earlier. I was like, I saw I saw what you're doing. That's right. It is a fantastic transition, Nick, if I do say so myself. Listen, the new Envy Pods over at our partners at Fresh Roasted Coffee. These pods are environmentally safe. They are compostable. And let me tell you something. When you open these individually wrapped pods, Nick, they smell absolutely delicious. You can check out these new pods from our sponsors over at freshroastedcoffee.com and enter in the promo code, new promo code, can we please get 20, all one word, and the number 20, can we please get 20 for 20% off your purchase? Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. 
All right. Incredibly excited to talk to this author because I mentioned to him off air, but I'm going to bring it here on air so I can make him blush a little bit. But his father was a huge influence on our life. We just talked about his father in the last segment, former host of Meet the Press. And here is Luke Russert with his new book that's out now, Look For Me There, Grieving My Father and Finding Myself. Luke, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be on with uh, some of the pride of Rutgers. That, that's right. Well, very well <laughs> said. You said that. That's going to be a sound by Tim Clip, that our, our producer. Um, I want to get into a bunch uh, with the book and with what you're doing right now, what you've done before in news. But just at the top, I've seen you everywhere. You've obviously found a home going back to NBC to promote the book across you know all the various programming and shows. You've been on so many different things, following you on Instagram. What's this whirlwind been like for you? You know, uh, 2008, Luke, looking at 2023, Luke, right now, doing a book tour and appearing everywhere. What would he say to that, Luke? Well, that's a very, uh, it's a good question. I often think about 22-year-old Luke, you know, which is how old I was in 2008 when my father passed away. And I turned about 23 when I started out in media. And it was such a different era then. Uh, you know, one of the things I like to say is that when my father passed away, I think part of the reason why we have so much nostalgia for him is that that really felt like the end of an era. What I mean by that, the end of the era of broadcast news in the morning, at night, cable during the day, real newspapers that had a circulation. And that's how people got their news, along with talk radio. And that was the infancy of Facebook and news through the Internet. I mean, it was there, but it was not in your face to the level that it is today. And this whole idea of streaming and Instagram reels and TikTok and all that was 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 unknown. And I think what's so interesting is that if you look at uh, doing a book, let's say in 2008, or you know, there's no podcast to the degree that we have today, right? There's no... The outlets are way less and they're much more traditional. I think what's been fascinating for me recently is I've had a really interesting mix of both. Uh, for everybody who says TV is dying, I would say the death of TV is greatly exaggerated. It still has a viewership. Uh, what that looks like in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we do not know. Uh, but I always tell people, like, there's about 20 million people that watch the nightly news every night on the three networks combined. Uh, there's millions in the morning. Uh, cable TV, if you look at the audience over the course of the day, there's usually a million people watching at some, at some point, et cetera. So that has been really interesting to see the reaction to that for a book. Uh, but I've also liked to do podcasts like this. And you know, do, I've done stuff from, I was interviewed by like a royal correspondent. I was interviewed on a sports podcast. And so that's a neat thing because you can sort of micro-target in a way, which is get your message out to niche groups uh, that might be interested in a component of what you have to say in the book. So I think that kid in 2008 would be like, man, I wish I was this young in the more current environment uh, because there's just so much more opportunity and there's so much more of a way to, to have your voice heard. And I'll go back to that for a second because one of the things that was very beneficial for me is I signed up for Twitter relatively early, so like February of 2009, when it was still getting traction in the journalist community. And Twitter was one of my greatest assets. And I think there was a, a uh, something had come out internally at NBC that I had like the least amount of airtime but the largest Twitter following. So how, how those things cor uh, correlated. And that's what I think is great for a lot of people coming out now is there, there, are, there is an opportunity for your voice to be heard, especially if you're sharp and, and you know what you're doing. Uh, and I, the other thing I say to people who are promoting a book or promoting anything, it's like don't be, you know, don't be too prideful. I mean, go, go talk to everybody. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things. I was interviewed by a husband and wife that like 
had a show about dogs. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I got to be honest. And Nick and I tried something 12 years ago on YouTube about a Raiders podcast. Him and I are both Raiders fans and that failed miserably. And here we are 12 years later doing something in news commentary that's actually taken off. So I echo those sentiments as well um, for people that, and by the way, you mentioning sports podcasts, that's where I kind of saw you recently on Rich Eisen's show. And I know he yeah. likes to do crossover topics like that, but for people that maybe don't know a little bit about your father, maybe don't know your trajectory as you went into news, you got out of news, you started traveling, you wrote this book. Maybe they're not even familiar with your mother as well and her great work. Why don't you take our audience a little bit inside, not only the Russert family, but what this book is about, what made you want to write it? Sure. So my father is late Tim Russert, moderator of Meet the Press. He passed away from a heart attack about 15 years ago. We're coming up on the anniversary, June 13th. So he died in 2008. And when he passed away, uh, there was a massive national outpouring of grief, more so than I think anything uh, my family ever expected. I mean, we thought that some people would know about it because he was a public facing figure. But uh, there were thousands of folks at his wake. Uh, he had a funeral service that uh, was at the Kennedy Center that was broadcast live. And I ended up giving the eulogy. Uh, there was a private church service prior to that. And then there was a, a eulogy at the Kennedy Center. And I gave that. And that eulogy was very well received. Um, but what I write about in the book is on June 12, 2008, I'm sort of this happy-go-lucky kid, three weeks out of college, thinking about what I'm going to do with my life, uh, probably approaching on a gap year, studying to try to go to grad school. I was really interested in international relations. I've been doing a little bit of uh, satellite radio work, but not necessarily knowing what I, what I wanted to do. And three weeks, uh, and you know, th so three weeks out of college, and a few days after that, I'm giving a eulogy with Barack Obama and John McCain and Joe Biden and Ethel Kennedy and Dick Cheney and, and the Rows and the Pews. So that was a huge whirlwind. And what the book is about is essentially starts starting off there and being given a job after my father passed away because there was a lot of TV executives in that audience that said, "Hey, you're a young guy." You're well-spoken. Youth issues are a big part of this campaign. Your last name doesn't hurt. Uh, let's put you out there and see what you can do. And I thought long and hard at the time about taking the job. It was a good idea. Uh, and my mom, to her credit, she's a journalist herself, Maureen Orth, uh, special correspondent for Vanity Fair, talented writer, I would add. <laughs> and she basically said to me, look, you got to make that decision on your own. And I said, all right. And I thought about it. And I thought, look, there's there's some divine intervention here. There's the universe, whatever it is you want to call it. But I should at least take advantage of this opportunity that's been presented to me. And so I started covering youth issues for NBC News. And that dried up after the election, the inauguration. And I had a few months left in my deal and I didn't really have much to do. And so I said, look, I don't want to sit here just sitting around doing nothing. Give me something to do. And they're like, what do you want to do? I go, well, you're shortstop to Capitol Hill. Let me just go up there and do some off-air reporting. And I was a history major in college. And so I got up to Capitol Hill and I started covering these subcommittees at all hours of the day and just putting up in all this information in the internal file. And one of the producers from one of the shows called me up. He said, you know, look, I learned so much from all these notes you put on our internal file. Why don't you do a little bit of reporting from the Hill? Just go back on air a little bit and see how it goes. And so I tried that out and I said, you know what, um, let's do another year of this and see how that that materializes. So I started reporting from the Capitol and ended up turning, becoming a congressional correspondent and did that for eight years, but ultimately felt unfulfilled. And the, what the book is about is why I left NBC and why I felt unfulfilled. And then ultimately realizing that through travel, I became more comfortable in uncertainty, but I was doing two things. It's that I was looking for something, which the title looked for me there. So the looking was looking for 
the ability to be my own person and the permission to be my own person independent of my father and his legacy. And I was running away from something. And that was the weight of grief, which I had never processed after he died. I threw myself into a job and a career and doing everything possible to maintain his legacy, his name and his standards. But I never really worked on myself. And that caught up to me after a number of years. So the book is that journey. There's a wanderlust, there's self-discovery, there's grief. Uh, there's a lot of universal themes that it's been so humbling to see the response for it. Uh, where you know people, I've had letters from people in their 80s that have said, you know, thank you so much for writing this. It, it's helped me process the death of my parent from 50 or 60 years ago. And that's really heartwarming stuff. So um, it's 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 something that I think a lot of people can relate to. Luke, it's a rough estimation, but I considering how long your your father had been the moderator of Meet the Press, I estimated about 884 Sundays. <laughs> he was doing his job. Um, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> so first and foremost, I want to just thank you and your family because you yeah. you loaned essentially your dad out to us, to the rest of us uh, for all those Sundays, um, just letting us be all part of the Russert family for, for yeah. that time. Um, you know, as you mentioned about the journey you took, what was one of the more powerful lessons that you took away from it? Because it sounds as though when you departed, it was really the beginning of discovery. So what was one of the discoveries along the way? There's so many. Uh, one of the things that I write about is faith and how that old adage that we hear often that we're, um, we're all trying to get to the same place, but we just take different roads is very true. I mean, I was able to be around Christianity and Islam and Judaism and Hinduism and Buddhism. And so I learned a lot about faith and what different cultures believe and took little bits and pieces of that in my own journey. Uh, which is basically trying to get to a place of peace and acceptance. And to get there, you have to sit in something that's difficult. And so I learned how to do that. And I would say for me, experiencing different faiths really led me to being able to accept grief uh, and understand that there's, you know, thousands of year, millions of year old script, if there, if, if you will, on how to do that. The other thing though that I learned, and I mentioned a little bit at the top, which I think is very important, when you travel extensively, you become more comfortable in uncertainty. And if you are dropped in the middle of the world, you don't speak the language, you don't know where you're going, things are getting hairy or things are, are not well, but you're comfortable enough to say, hey, I just got to get from point A to point B. I'm not going to freak out. Um, and I'm comfortable with my own abilities and my own self. That's a very powerful thing. Uh, which I didn't have when I was at NBC. I was be I, I joked in a talk I gave the other day. I was in the a coup in Zimbabwe that I write about in the book um, when the, the President Mugabe was being deposed there in 2017, and it was it was kind of scary. I mean, it was safe; there wasn't violence in the streets or anything like that. But it's scary because no one knows who's in charge or what's going on. And I said, you know, if I was at NBC, I'd probably be screaming on the phone with the U.S. Embassy, be like, "Get me out of here!" But I was like, "Hey, you know," I called a guy. He said, "Hey, if you can get out, it's pretty good." And then I ended up calling a guy who had driven me to the hotel and he's like, I can, I, my cousin's a cop. I can help you get out. And I think the airport's open and just sort of trusted in, in my fellow man. And that was a wonderful thing to have been able to do. And I learned to do that. I learned to trust and learned to be comfortable in uncertainty. And I learned how to process grief. So then there's three that I learned on the travels. You know, Luke, one of the big things I took away from the book is this competition you talk about having with your mother, because I have a similar thing. My mom doesn't even watch this show. Uh, mom, if you're watching, please start watching. But in all seriousness, um, 
the, and then I heard um, Ernie Johnson, the the current TNT uh, inside the NBA host, talking about his father's legacy in the business. If you don't know, Ernie Johnson Sr. was a former Atlanta Braves, Braves announcer. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so it, it, he talks a little bit about with Dan Lebertard about, you know, this sense of, you know, trying to live in his father's shadows, but be his own person. And, and when he was calling a Braves Dodger game, that dichotomy of Brave fans killing him, your dad would not be proud if you said that, et cetera, et cetera. So the question I pose to you as somebody who doesn't have a famous mother, but still deals with the challenges of competition amongst her. And then the flip side, Ernie Johnson talking about the legacy of his father, his famous father to millions of people out there. What advice would you give to somebody that in your book reads about this, this competition that they're potentially having with their parents or even trying to live up to their parents' name? What advice would you give them based on the things that you've learned having that famous last name? Well, I'll start with the part about your mom first, because I think it's so interesting. Uh, one of the things I write in the book is that I had never really understood who my mom was independent of that role of mom. I never knew who she was as a person. I think as we get older, we start to discover our parents as mortals, right? And you sort of get to their origin stories and see who they are. And it was through traveling with her one-on-one, -on -one, which I had never done until my 30s. I had traveled with my father to sporting events and political conventions all the time one-on-one. -on -one. I had a lot of bonding time with him. Never had that with my mom. And once I traveled with my mom, I, I realized, oh, here is this young woman that before she became a writer was a Peace Corps volunteer and grew up in a very disciplined house. Her father was very strict. And so he set really strict boundaries and instilled real values in her that she had. And so there was this personification of never settling, like always moving forward, always being aggressive, always being curious, never turning it off. Uh, and she was very hard on me, I felt, growing up because she would say I was lazy or spoiled or entitled, et cetera, and your, your dad's too nice to you. And I never understood where that came from. I thought she was just being mean to me. But when I traveled with her and I saw how she would act in these foreign countries, just completely fearless, powering her way through these crowded markets, hailing taxi cabs in the middle of uh, in crowded streets, you know, using Google Translate to try and talk to anyone out there. I was like, wow, this is a badass woman. So no wonder uh, she was hard on me growing up because she was trying to get the best out of me. She was very competitive. And once I understood that, I calmed out a little bit. I was like, oh, okay, you know what? That's mom being mom or Maureen being Maureen because that's just who she is and, and she's just trying to get the best of me. Quick example on that. This past Saturday, I did that. was on my feet for three hours, meet and greet, talking to everybody, Q&A, uh, doing a reading, the whole nine yards. And she was in the audience. It's very nice. I do the whole thing after three hours, and I'm a little tired, right, as one would be. And she comes up and she says, okay, I need a ride to this thing I'm going to right now. So just no appreciation for what happened. I was like, that's my mom, right? right. Move forward. Go and do it. I think when it comes to um, you know, last name and legacy and people who, who endure that, you know, that happens not just in media, that happens in a lot of fields, whether, and, and I remember I got a really nice note, um, when I started out at NBC and it was from, a, from a guy who ran a sandwich shop in Boston, he was like a third generation of running a sandwich shop. And he said, uh, you know, take the lessons that they gave you, but leave your own imprint on it. And I've always remembered that, which is that, you know, you're always going to be compared to who you came before you, especially when you have a famous last name. But even if it's a sandwich shop and there's, there's inevitably someone's going to walk through the front door of that sandwich shop and be like, you know what? 
your grandfather's pastrami was a lot better than yours, right? And you just sort of have to understand that. That's that's part of the territory. It's part of how human beings act. Uh, and just don't let it get to you the best that you can. And most of the time, I think, you know, especially as a young man, well, people would say negative things and it would hurt. I, was, I wasn't under any illusion that everyone's going to be nice or anything like that. I think there's just a natural tendency to compare somebody uh, to their parents or to their siblings or whatnot. And one of the things I say is there's sort of like three ways to handle that. And I always point to the Manning family. There's Peyton Manning, who did everything in his power to be better than his dad, right? Like, I'm going to be the best quarterback of all time. I'm going to study more than anybody that's ever studied the game. And people say that about Peyton Manning. Like, he was a film room freak, like, would never leave the film room. Then there's Eli, who's in that realm, but, like, not as hardcore as his brother. That's sort of, you know, honoring the family. And then there's Cooper, the guy who's kind of behind the scenes, you know, having a good time, is sort of happy to be there, right? So... Make what you want of it. It's it's your choice. I think, Luke, as you were talking a moment ago about, about legacy, and often as a son, we immediately are associated with our father. Um, it's true with, you know, Bronian's dad, LeBron James, obviously, and there's so many comparisons like that. But what have you learned? You, you mentioned traveling with your mother. Um, what you've learned more about her just in the time that you both have bonded, and have you learned potentially that you're more like her than maybe people have sort of connected to when everyone sort of normally sees you as, well, that's Tim's son, but you know, have you learned that you're more of your mom's boy than maybe people gave credit for? Yeah, it's a great question because I think there is a tendency to pair fathers and sons together, which makes sense, right? There's that very unique father son relationship. There is that sense of masculinity and, and how it plays out. Uh, but what I learned when I traveled with my mother that, you know, I'm more like her in the sense that my father was very risk adverse. Uh, he didn't like to take a lot of chances. Uh, he really valued security. He came from a very uh, close-knit Irish Catholic community in South Buffalo. Uh, it was very parochial. Uh, everyone looked after each other. But there was this real sense of don't rock the boat too much because if you do that, you're, you're going to get in trouble or something bad's going to happen. And he would really work. He would work incredibly hard his entire life. He really valued security to a level that uh, we, we joke, he, he signed a 12-year contract with NBC, which is unheard of in media because you're giving up all your leverage, right? And he said, no, 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 I'm, I like where I am. I'm, it's secure. I'm safe. I'm happy. And that's what I want to do. And I think I learned that even during my adolescence and perhaps in college and in the early part of my career, I thought that I valued that security a lot. But I realized through traveling, especially in hanging out with my mom, that no, I, I was more adventurous than I gave myself credit for. And I had always wanted to be adventurous. I just didn't want to betray dad. And that's one of the things I write about is that when you, you're dealing with the ghost and you don't want to upset that ghost, it's a sort of hard thing to navigate. But I'm very grateful for my mom for um, allowing me the space to figure that out on my own. You're not sort of aggressively pushing me in one direction to be like her, sort of allowing me to realize it. Because as I realized it on my own, then I was much more likely to uh, embrace it. Luke, you know, it's a perfect transition because your mom's a famous journalist. Obviously, we, we know her work at Vanity Fair. Your father was big in the journalism field. You spent eight years covering the stuff that Nick and I talk about all the time with respect to D.C. politics and interest of full disclosure. I started as a news producer once upon a time. At Fox News, I am to blame for some of the ire of people out here. But anyway, uh, we transition off of that because 
I would love to get not only your take on current state of journalism, uh, you mentioned about it in the book, you brought it up here earlier on about, you know, that your father kind of died right before this golden age, right? Where for like new technology, emerging platforms, the ability to have short form content in your face, a bunch of different places. Now we're seeing it more prevalent where anybody and everybody that has a microphone, an RSS feed, a recording a studio like we have here with, with, with Zoom and stuff like that can push out content. It leads to misinformation, disinformation. We've seen it trickle into everyday politics. What do you make of the current state of journalism? And more importantly, what would Big Tim say about the current state of media, Sunday shows, et cetera? It's hard to say because it it's like in sports when you compare eras, right? So I think it's really fair to say that my father, when he played, it's like they didn't, you know, there was no three point line. That's sort of what the comparison is. When you think about this new golden age we're in, where the technology is so fast paced and so massive and so widespread that it allows so many more voices to be included. And there's a lot of value in that, but there's also some concerns. And that's what you mentioned about disinformation and how quickly that can, can move around. I think the one thing though, that my father would be upset about is there's a real lack of civility uh, when it comes to media and politics in our discourse. And one of the things that that does is it drives people into their camps because if there's an absence of decorum and nobody can be trusted to be the effective gatekeeper or no one can be trusted to be uh, that sensible person in the room, then people say, you know what, I'm going to stick to my camp and I'm not even going to get out of that. So I think that's problematic. As far as you know, what the future entails, it's, it's fascinating because it's never been easier to obtain information, right? It moves so quickly now in every one of these different mediums, whether it's podcasting or social media or traditional broadcasts, et cetera. But on the other hand, it's never been harder. It, it, it's, it's never been harder to verify that information is actually correct. And you, people hear that, are you sure? And I said, well, yeah, because sometimes you can see, you know, old photographs are circulated like they're new or old videos are circulated like they're new and people get all riled up. And I think what we're starting to see is that for all the advantages of everyone being a citizen journalist in some capacity, there is something to be said about standards and there is something to be said about effective gatekeepers. And I think that's sort of where the future is going to go is, all right, we need to be much more upfront about who, in fact, is uttering the message and what their standards are and be conscientious of that. And for all the problems in the mainstream media, um, there are at least editorial standards where if there's a, a falsehood or something bad, they should answer. They should offer a correction. Uh, you know, someone blogging doesn't have to do that. Right. And there's a big disconnect there. Couldn't agree more on that. Uh, before we let you go, Luke, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about your father's passion that's been passed down to you and also passed down to producer Tim, the producer of this show. That's <laughs> the love of the Buffalo Bills. He wrote this question. What is one of your favorite Bills stories or maybe games that you and your father went to? What's a good Bills story that you have? Um, I actually went to the Bills third and fourth Super Bowls with my father. And I was a young kid. And uh, there's the great story was in the third Super Bowl where Dallas was blowing them out of the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. Uh, we were getting ready to, uh, we're just going to get out of here. This is brutal. This is really sad. And as we're getting up to go, it was the infamous Leon Lett uh, intercepts the bar, picks up the fumble, and is running to score a touchdown. And he's hot-dogging it, dancing in the end zone. And 
the Bills wide receiver, Don Beebe, number 82, even though the Bills are getting blown out, runs the length of the field as fast as he can and knocks the ball out of Leon Lett's hand. So it's a touchback and it's a safety and presents, prevents the touchdown. And that moment, and I remember my dad cheering in that moment, just personified Buffalo. It's like, yeah, we're getting beat up. We're, we're, we're getting rolled right now. But damn it, we're going to knock the ball out of you hot-dogging us as you score in the Super Bowl. We're not going to let that happen. And I remember that moment, and it was the only time, I think, after the first five minutes we cheered in that game. And it was, uh, it was, it was pretty special for a young kid. Um, the other ones, uh, you know, a lot of them are heartache ones. You know, the forward lateral in Tennessee, we weren't at that game, but I, would wa- I was watching my dad very closely. And as soon as the Bills kicked the field goal to go up in that game, we all knew someone called it was uh in my and they're like congratulations you beat the tennessee titans and my dad's like it's not over yet <laughs> and of course it was not over so that's one of the things you learn as a bills fan too which uh i read about in the book i learned from buddhism which is embrace the suffering you know for sure but uh sports fandom is something that i think is so important for community and especially for fathers and sons I mean, one of the things I've said in these interviews is when the Bills play for those three and a half hours, it feels like dad's alive again. And that's so special and so great. So don't ever let anybody tell you being a sports fan is silly. Like, yeah, it's not the end of the world, right? But it's really important for community and for relationships and getting together. It's really how we connect in our lives now, more so than in England. We're so digital, but those moments where you're in a stadium with 50,000 other people, oh, it's fantastic. Very well said. And obviously, as somebody who watches sports and has to explain to my wife who watches the Bravo franchise, I try to explain it's the same thing. It's kind of like it's the right. same thing. It's you got true. your villains, you got your heroes, you, know, you got the GMs. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's truly like that. Yeah. Luke, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on the program today. You can go get Luke Russert's book out there wherever books are sold. Look for me there. Grieving My Father, Finding Myself. It's truly a great read. And Luke, I can't not only thank you for coming on here to do this interview, but also for sharing, like Nick said, your father with us every Sunday morning. We truly appreciate it. Continued success to you, sir. Please stay safe. Mike, Nick, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote, and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. All right, our thank yous there to Luke Russert. Like I mentioned, look for me there. Grieving my father, finding myself. It's, let me tell you something. I didn't tell him this. Uh, We were talking with him off air. I forgot to mention this. I got this book from the Harper Collins, the, the publisher, excuse me, Harper Horizon, the publishers that sent us over the book, you and I copies. And I started reading it. I think you read it first. You started reading, you were texting me. You're like, this thing is good. I get it because I was traveling, come back home. I start reading it. And within the first 10 pages, I call my father, like just instantly, you know, just, and my dad, when I called my dad, 
to tell him I was reading this book and stuff like that. You know, my dad was a big meet the press guy. I love Tim Russford as well. And he's just like, all right, Mike, like, you know, almost as if like, what are you wishing something on me? Like, that's why you're calling me. You know how parents tend to do that. And I'm sitting there going, no, dad, listen, sometimes you watch a commercial, you see a movie, something's portrayed, or you read a book, something like this, that's powerful where you're just like, holy, you know what? I got to stop what I'm doing and contact the person I love. And I think he kind of mentioned it a little bit there. If he didn't, he maybe alluded to it. I'll allude to it myself. You know, you got to tell people that are in your life that you love them. Because if you don't know the story about his father passing away, and it was sudden, they were on a trip to Italy. That He talks about it in the book. And they, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but I mean, obviously, you know what the title is. But, um, you know, they're in Italy and his father went back to pre-record something, which is now famous video of him pre-recording an interview, I think, with Bob Dole for a father's uh, Father's Day edition of Meet the Press. And he went back and NBC News contacted Luke and said, your father's fainted. Uh, can we speak to your mother? And it was really like, wait a minute, dad fainted? Dad's never fainted before in his life. Um, and then they find out that his father had a massive heart attack and had passed away. So, you know, he didn't get that chance to say goodbye to him other than, you know, obviously seeing him a couple of days before because he had just... He alludes to this in the book. I just talked to him the other day, so I couldn't believe that that happened. What were some of your um, takeaways, Nick, just not only on Luke, but the book itself as we wrap here in our final segment? Yeah, we, you know, we talked about, you know, the sort of that tie, and you just spoke to it right there, you know, the tie between fathers and sons. And yeah, and I think it's something that for any of us reading the book, it immediately just jumps at you about just kind of taking inventory of where you are with your parents at that given time. And if you had the conversations with them that you want to have, because it's true. I mean, all of this is fleeting. Um, so I sat with that. And I also thought a lot about just the journey. I thought Luke does a really phenomenal job of bringing up, you know, that there's something to be said about, about being spiritual and not necessarily religious. I, I mean, Luke strikes us as, as being a little bit of both, but you know, in his travels and understanding what grief means, through the lens of these different faiths, it's, it just was a profound experience that, you know, sometimes when we think about our faith as being like this silo type of thinking and not necessarily extending ourselves to different worldviews, you know, you can feel a little limited and sort of have to sit with sit with pain in a certain way that is feels obligated. But in reality, just being around the world, seeing how different people deal with something as universal as grief is is powerful. And yeah, I I think he brings up a good point about. It was so. It is a. It's a smaller piece. But this thing about the internet and gatekeeping, and I mean, Luke's a part of that world. I mean, he saw it, you know, as, as being Tim's son, but also just someone who's been in the media space. And you know, I've brought that up a lot on this show too, as you have too, Mike. About you know, we are definitely in the wild, wild west right now when it comes to the media and media literacy and publication. Anyone can put out anything. Anyone can say anything. And you know we're we're losing that ability to edit ourselves and um, have someone really just hold us accountable to being truthful. And you know his his dad certainly did that on the show. But you know Luke sees the landscape now, and and it is a little scary you know, out there. And um, it's a good reminder for us all of, of making sure that what we say is verified, or we're working with someone like I do with my co-host here, you know, who makes sure to keep me in check and make sure that what I'm saying is based on, based on fact and not, not foolishness. And um, yeah, he brings up, he just brings up a really good reminder about that. 
Yeah, very well said. Well, we leave it there. Uh, that's our show for today. Video, you want to check out the video portion of this interview that we did with Luke. Head to our YouTube channel, type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. We should come right up and hit the subscribe button for me. Audio podcast platforms, you know by now, Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to everybody who listens to us over on Good Pods. Shout out to Acast, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. Can't do it without each and every one of you that listens to this program. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. We'll see everybody next time.